Hello, uh, I'm Vera Gowland de Bass. I'm an honorary professor at the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva. I will focus in this lecture on the role played by the mechanisms instituted by Chapter 7 of the UN Charter in the area of individual criminal responsibility. More particularly, I'd like to speak to you on the relationship between the Security Council and the International Criminal Court, whose statute, as you know, came into force on July 1, 2002. A number of factors have militated since the 1990s in favor of the institutionalization of international criminal responsibility and the codification of its rules and procedures. Uh, there's been the breakdown of the fiction of the monolithic nature of the state and the realization that collective punishment of entire populations for the acts of their leaders was no longer in keeping with international legal mores. There was also the reinforcement of human rights law, which has gained center stage, uh, and, of course, its corollary need to fight against impunity. But most important, while at the domestic level, debate is still ongoing as to the objectives of criminal justice. Is it deterrence? Is it retribution? Is it protection of victims? In international law, a linkage has been forged between criminal responsibility and the maintenance of international peace and security. And this includes post-war reconstruction of war-torn societies, in which transitional justice has become a fundamental component in the search for conciliation of, of different uh, national societies. And so it's in this context that the relationship between the Security Council and the International Criminal Court has gained in significance. Now, the ICC is an independent organization. It's based on its own treaty. At the same time, it has entered into formal relationship with the United Nations. The preamble expresses the desire of the court for, and I quote, a mutually beneficial relationship between the two institutions. The relationship agreement between the UN and the ICC recognizes the court as an independent, permanent judicial institution which has international legal personality. In the court recognizes the responsibilities of the United Nations under the Charter, and it declares also that the United Nations and the court respect each other's status and mandate. Finally, in Article 3 of the Relationship Agreement, there is an obligation which is stated of cooperation and coordination on matters of mutual interest. It is this independence and impartiality of a judicial organ uh, which is, of course, recognized in that relationship agreement, that is put to the test by the role which has been given on the, or has been bestowed on the Security Council by the court statute. Because the links established between the ICC and the Security Council are even closer than those between the Council and its subsidiary organs, the criminal tribunals, in the sense that the Council partakes in the judicial process itself. The role to be played by the Security Council in the International Criminal Court proved to be one of the most controversial aspects of the 1998 Rome Statute. It was initially outlined in Article 23 of the International Law Commission's 1994 draft statute for an international criminal court, and then Article 23 was substantially rethought in Rome. While partially settled through the adoption of Articles 5, 13b and 16 of the statute, 
The debate over the role of the Security Council in respect of the crime of aggression, a debate which was postponed in Rome, has continued in the ICC's Special Working Group on the Crime of Aggression and is on the agenda of the imminent review conference which will be taking place in Kampala in June 2010. The relationship between court and council cannot be seen in isolation. It must be analyzed within the context of the broad, largely unsystematic efforts at the international level directed to the emergence of a domain of general or public interest and what can broadly be viewed as an ordre public of the international community, in which there is a notable convergence of the objectives and functions of the court and of the council. The establishment of a permanent international criminal court can be seen as a logical development of a process of creating international institutional responses to violations of core norms forming the substance of such an order public. In the preamble to the statute, it's emphasized that such a court is only intended to exercise, and I quote, jurisdiction over the most serious crimes of concern to the international community as a whole. The initial draft statute proposed by the ILC had defined a crime under general international law as one, and I quote, under a norm of international law accepted and recognized by the international community of states as a whole of being such a fundamental character that its violation gives rise to the criminal responsibility of individuals. At the same time, the mechanisms instituted under Chapter 7 of the United Nations uh, Charter, which grant, as you know, extensive powers to the Security Council to determine under Article 39 a threat to the peace, breach of a peace, or act of aggression, opening the way to the application of coercive measures, have been utilized in the Council's practice to respond to violations of core norms of international law, which are seen as constituent elements of the threat to or breach of the peace. In addition, the Security Council has ventured into the field of individual criminal responsibility by playing a role in its institutionalization. And this has led to the unprecedented creation of the two ad hoc international criminal tribunals for former Yugoslavia and for Rwanda as subsidiary organs of the Security Council. But the Council has also encouraged the establishment of a special court for Sierra Leone. It has imposed the special tribunal for Lebanon, as well as ad hoc justice mechanisms in the context of territorial administrations, Bosnia, East Timor, and Kosovo. So this trend has raised issues concerning the role which the Council should play in the field of individual responsibility. In particular, the relationship between peace and justice, and that between political and judicial organs, when the former, that is the political organ, acts in a quasi-judicial capacity, thereby affecting the decision-making in the latter. It has also raised the question of the consent lying at the base of treaties and the principles of criminal justice. I want to start by looking at the relationship between peace and justice. The linkage between criminal justice and the restoration of peace and security is sustained by the statute of the International Criminal Court. In its preamble, it states, recognizing that such grave crimes threaten the peace, security, and well-being of the world. 
The statute also reaffirms the purposes and principles of the United Nations, including the prohibition of the threat or use of force in international relations. The way that the Security Council's competence, which is a discretionary competence, under Article 39, has been embedded in the court's procedures in the Rome Statute, is based on the recognition that the functions of the ICC and the Council are complementary in respect of the four crimes over which the court has assumed jurisdiction. That's genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, and aggression. That's in Article uh, 5, Paragraph 1. And in fact, genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes, not aggression because the Council has never determined an act of aggression, uh, has been really included by the Security Council in determinations under Article 39 of the Charter as constituent elements of the threat to or breach of the peace in particular situations and hence falling under its own responsibility under Chapter 7. While some states in Rome had argued that a universally respected instrument um, or criminal justice system requires separating judicial from political, individual from state responsibility, others on the contrary had underlined the need to enlist the Security Council in ensuring an effective response to individual crimes. A relationship between peace and justice has therefore been created. I'm not referring here, by the way, to abstract notions of peace and justice, but to their more mundane meaning, the one referring to international peace maintenance, which is a political concept, the other referring to justice within the framework of the legal system as involving judicial process. These two concepts can no longer be separated as they once were in the original charter reading of Article 1.1, which links justice only to peaceful settlement of disputes and not to collective measures. Nor, by the way, is this relationship novel. The ICTY in the Tadic appeals case, by upholding the view that the legality of its creation rested on Article 41 of the UN Charter, in other words, constituting one measure the Security Council could itself impose under Chapter 7, as opposed to those measures under Article 41 that it can call on member states to carry out, appeared to put forward criminal justice as instrumental to peace. In other words, one of the ways by which the Security Council could exercise its functions for peace maintenance. The peace and justice dilemma has two faces appearing both in the form of peace collaborating with justice, more accurately a role for justice within peace, and in the form of peace versus justice when the two are in opposition or conflict. But peace, of course, can also reinforce justice, giving it the means for its enforcement. First, justice as an instrument for peace. One of the ways in which the court's jurisdiction may be triggered under the ICC statute is for the Security Council acting under Chapter 7 to refer to the prosecutor, and I quote, a situation in which one or more of such crimes appears to have been committed. That's Article 13, Paragraph B of the statute. Note that this refers to a situation, not an individual case, nor a crime. 
Now, there's an acceptable rationale behind this provision. It introduces a collective triggering mechanism parallel to that exercised unilaterally by the state's parties or by the prosecutor in Articles 13a and C, respectively. And it was intended to avoid the establishment of ad hoc tribunals by the Council, though it has not prevented the Council since from, in fact, doing so. This power of the Security Council to trigger proceedings in the court was not generally contested by states. But by embedding the Council's discretionary determinations under Article 39 within the court's procedures, this referral of a situation to the court carries potentially important implications for the legal position of states and of individuals, and in particular, in relation to certain safeguards which were instituted for states by the Rome Statute. The referral by the Security Council of the situation in Darfur to the court on the basis of Resolution 1593 in 2005 was the first test case of these provisions and helped settle some of the questions raised by this provision in the statute. It also illustrates the consequences of this outreach of a Security Council decision. The statute stipulates only that the Council must be acting under Chapter 7. It doesn't detail the procedures by which the Council can refer a situation to the court. In the case of Darfur, however, the Security Council confirmed the need of a prior determination under Article 39. The resolution declared that the situation in Sudan, quote, continues to constitute a threat to international peace and security. And the Council expressly acts under Chapter 7. It refers in the resolution uh, to, I quote, to refer, or sorry, it states in the resolution, quote, to refer the situation in Darfur since 1 July 2002 to the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court. It thus also clarifies the question of whether the Council should abide by the principle of non-retroactivity, since the date stipulated in Resolution 1593 is that of the entry into force of the statute. It's significant that this first case of referral relates to a non-state party to the statute. Sudan was a signatory but had not ratified the treaty. A Security Council referral therefore bypasses the preconditions for the exercise of jurisdiction under Article 12, which stops short, by the way, of conferring universal jurisdiction on the ICC. For the Council, some of whose members are themselves non-parties to the ICC statute, may initiate themselves a process leading to the prosecution of individuals in situations where neither the state in which the crime has been committed nor the state of which the accused person is a national are parties to the statute and in the absence of their acceptance of jurisdiction under Article 12, Paragraph 3. While the end result is not dissimilar to that created by an ad hoc tribunal set up by the Security Council, the particularity of these provisions lies in that they interlock a consensual treaty-based regime with the mandatory decision-making in the Council. The United States, a non-party to the Rome Statute, though still a signatory despite declarations to the contrary, explained its abstention on the resolution on grounds of its fundamental objections to the ICC's competence to exercise jurisdiction over nationals of non-states. 
parties. It did not oppose the resolution, however, in return for the incorporation into the resolution of certain safeguards protecting from investigation or prosecution the nationals and members of armed forces of non-state parties. So the resolution states in its preamble that it was, and I quote, taking note of the existence of agreements referred on in Article 98, Paragraph 2 of the Rome Statute. This was an oblique reference to the so-called bilateral impunity agreements which the United States had concluded with a number of states to safeguard the immunity of its foreign and military personnel. On the other hand, certain states considered that it was precisely the embedding of Security Council mechanisms in the statute that constituted an encroachment on third-party treaty rights. So this is a very good illustration of how, from a voluntarist perspective, the original source of consent in the treaty-making process may become increasingly remote and complex, which makes Sir Elihu Lauterpacht's comments regarding the quasi-judicial decisions of the Security Council in an earlier inquiry that he had gone into, into the administration of international justice, even more fitting. I quote from Elie Lauterpacht, where do we find the consent of those affected by a quasi-judicial decision of the Security Council to the exercise by that organ of such a jurisdiction. We either have to identify a more remote act of consent or conclude that we're in the presence of a usurped power. Either way, it will be seen, the significance of consent in the sense in which it has been relied on by the ICJ and other international tribunals is much reduced. This concern was expressed by some states during the Rome Conference. In an explanation of vote following the adoption of the statute on, in 1998, the Indian representative has stated, and I quote, the statute will give non-state parties working through the council the power to bind other non-state parties. If that is indeed the intention, why have we gone through this charade of a conference of plenipotentiaries and the agonizing over optional jurisdiction and state consent? Nevertheless, the statute does allow the court to assert its independence in ensuring that referral of a situation by the Security Council does not automatically lead to proceedings in the court. Nor can the Council oblige the court to act in view of the fact that the court has la compétence de la compétence under its statute. The prosecutor also has a certain discretion in the matter of deciding on an investigation or prosecution. The prosecutor can, under Articles 53, Paragraph 2a to c, determine that there is not a sufficient legal or factual basis, that the case is inadmissible under Article 17, or that a prosecution would not be in the interests of justice. Despite the possibility that this may be reviewed by the pretrial chamber, this is an added safeguard in respect of referral by a political organ. For the Council's fact-finding, may not correspond to the rigorous requirements for the initiation of a criminal justice process. The principle of admissibility or complementarity, which is really at the heart of the Rome Statute, recognizes the primary responsibility of states by allowing the court to assume jurisdiction only when the competent domestic mechanisms fail or states are unwilling and unable to act, or unwilling to, uh, sorry, unwilling or unable to act. 
The initial debate on whether the rules on admissibility would apply in a situation referred to the court by the council, following from a, a certain ambiguity in the statute, because Article 18 appears to contradict Article 17, has been settled, however, by the case of Darfur, which appears to support the view that complementarity should operate in such a case. The pretrial chamber of the ICC has confirmed this reading in considering that the resolution on Darfur was a valid referral under Article 13b of the statute since the crimes fell within the jurisdiction of the court, were admissible since there was an absence of criminal proceedings and Sudan had therefore shown its unwillingness or inability to prosecute, and would not be contrary to the interests of justice in view of the gravity of the situation, the purpose of referral, which was the need to fight impunity and to seek impartial justice, and because of the overall context of the situation. Generally speaking, the Council could, of course, still bypass the statute's safeguards by virtue of the operation of Article 103 of the Charter. While this article is not applicable to the court itself, a situation could arise in which member states' obligations under the Charter would have to prevail over those of the ICC in case of conflict. And this would mean that member states would be obliged to cooperate with the court, regardless of the provisions on admissibility, on the basis of a mandatory Security Council resolution to this effect. The ICC could also conclude that in this case, the national judicial system is unavailable because of the mandatory resolution, and the state is unable to carry out the proceedings by virtue of that same mandatory decision. So in fact, the court could still continue to rely on the admissibility provisions. So this is an interesting illustration of how the linkage between the Security Council's discretionary powers and the ICC could have effects on individual rights. Another issue, it's a side issue, but I think it's interesting to raise, arising from the Darfur resolution, and which has been underlined by some commentators, is that of funding. Resolution 1593 requires that no funding for the investigation into the Darfur situation shall come from the United Nations, but must be borne by the state's parties to the Rome Statute or from voluntary funds. This indeed is a derogation from Article 115 of the statute, which provides that the funds relating to the expenses of the court and the assembly of states' parties would inter alia be provided by the United Nations subject to the approval of the General Assembly, in particular in relation to the expenses incurred due to referrals by the Security Council. And it is seen that the General Assembly alone has the competence to make that decision. Let me look at the question of peace contra justice. Article 16 of the Rome Statute, which has to do with deferral as opposed to referral by the Security Council of the Court's proceedings, states, and I quote, no investigation or prosecution may be commenced or proceeded with under the statute for a period of 12 months after the Security Council in a resolution adopted under Chapter 7 of the Charter has requested the court to that effect. That request may be renewed by the Council under the same conditions. Under Article 16 of the Rome Statute, the situation which had existed under Article 23.3 of the previous draft has been reversed. 
For now, the Security Council must act affirmatively on the basis of a resolution adopted under Chapter 7, requesting the court to defer commencement or continuance of an investigation. In such a situation, even a consensus among all five permanent members of the Council to block the court would prove insufficient, while at the same time, the veto of only one of them would be sufficient to prevent such a deferral. Moreover, the temporal limitation of 12 months, although subject to renewal, was intended to act as an additional safeguard. So the intent behind Article 16 was to narrow as much as possible the field of maneuver of the Security Council. And the safeguards were supposed to have attenuated some of the concerns of states that the independence of the court could be undermined by allowing for extensive control by a political organ. However, Resolution 1422, adopted on 12 July 2002, only a, f uh, two uh, 2002, a few days after the statute came into force, has raised concern once again over this provision. It requested that the ICC, if faced with a case involving current or former officials or personnel from a contributing state, not a party to the Rome Statute, concerning acts or omissions relating to a United Nations established or authorized operation, shall for a 12-month period starting 1 July 2002 not commence or proceed with investigation or prosecution of any such case unless the Security Council decides otherwise. It will be noted that the resolution covered not only peacekeeping, but also military action authorized by the Security Council. Now, these are two very different types of operations. And the authorized military action is undertaken very often without the control of the United Nations. So that the net effect of the Council's resolution was to remove retroactively the possibility of prosecution in the specific cases of peacekeepers or military personnel who may have committed crimes under the court's jurisdiction if these individuals came from a state not party to the Rome Statute. Although the resolution invokes the provisions of Article 16, it is debatable whether it was in conformity with it, both as regards the resolution's text and intent, as well as the object and purpose of the statute. Resolution 1422 made no determination under Article 39. It simply stated that the Council was acting under Chapter 7. The source of the threat to the peace was unclear. The resolution merely stating in its preamble that, and I quote, it is in the interests of international peace and security to facilitate member states' ability to contribute to operations established or authorized by the UN Security Council. The request to the court made in Resolution 1422 is made in generic terms, not in regard to a specific situation, to be examined on its merits, which appears to go against the tenor of Article 16, which was not intended to give a blanket immunity to a particular class of individuals. In short, in my view, the resolution would have called into question the principle of equality of individuals before the law, which is a fundamental principle of international criminal justice, by serving to shield certain individuals from the administration of justice. In a letter signed by the ambassadors of New Zealand, South Africa, Brazil, and Canada, it is stated that in addition to the question of the legitimacy of the Council 
arrogating to itself the right to interpret and to change the meaning of treaties, its, and I quote, action is damaging international efforts to combat impunity, the system of international justice, and our collective ability to use these systems in the pursuit of international peace and security. The resolutions intend to renew this request yearly for as long as may be necessary, that is indefinitely, though not expressly counter to Article 16, was considered to be contrary to its spirit. Nevertheless, the resolution was expressly renewed only once. It expired in June 2004, after the Secretary General had demonstrated his strong opposition to this renewal. He stated, I think in these circumstances, it would be unwise to press for an exemption, and it would be even more unwise on the part of the Security Council to grant it. It would discredit the Council and the United Nations that stands for rule of law and the primacy of rule of law. As far as the legal effect of this request to the court, this could only have been binding on the court within the framework of its statute. While not having general powers of judicial review over the legality of the Security Council's resolutions under the Charter, the court would inevitably have had to review Resolution 1422 in order to consider whether its jurisdiction under the statute had in fact been deferred. In this connection, it's interesting to note that Resolution 1593, in other words, the one on Darfur, strangely recalls, so it's a referral resolution, but it strangely recalls in the preamble the provisions of Article 16, uh, in other words, rather than Article 13b on referral. It likewise grants immunity to other third-party states contributing peacekeepers by granting them exclusive jurisdiction over their nationals. This is not the first time that the Council has done that. It had insisted on the inclusion of such provisions in the statute of the Special Court for Sierra Leone. So let me leave aside now the question of deferral and go on to the question of peace sustaining justice. In other words, the enforcement of cooperation by states by the Security Council. The Security Council has also been enlisted as an enforcement mechanism to ensure cooperation by states with the ICC in parallel with the assembly of states' parties. Under articles, uh, Article 87, Paragraph 5 and Paragraph 7, the court may refer such instances of non-cooperation to the council. While the statute does not expressly mention how this enforcement is to take place, presumably the Security Council could consider such refusals to cooperate as a threat to international peace and security, thus enabling it to act under Chapter 7. The, in fact, the resolution uh, on Darfur, uh, in that resolution, the Security Council decides that the government of Sudan and all other parties to the conflict shall cooperate fully with the court and prosecutor, and the prosecutor is also invited to address the council every six months on actions taken pursuant to that resolution. On another topic, that of the relationship between judicial and political organs. The linkage between the Security Council and the International Criminal Court raises some general international law and policy issues relating to the classical debate over the legal, political dichotomy in international society 
as well as to the separation of political from judicial organ. First of all, the Council's quasi-judicial determinations of an act of aggression. The ICC's formal relationship with the UN is one based on consultation and cooperation and coordination, not deference. Yet we've seen how the integration of the functions of the Security Council into the statute may set challenges to the independence of the court since both bodies are operating in the kinds of situations most likely to constitute threats to or breaches of international peace and security, while of course acting in different fields, the one uh, involving state and the other individual responsibility. The problem therefore that is raised is that the quasi-judicial determinations of the political organ may have an impact on the judicial one. And this is illustrated by the future role to be played by the Security Council in the ICC in relation to the crime of aggression. Aggression figures as one of the core crimes within the jurisdiction of the court under Article 5. And certainly it would have been difficult to exclude it from the court statute, despite the fact that there was no precise legal definition under international law, and that aggression essentially gives rise to state rather than individual responsibility. At the Rome Conference, however, the controversy surrounding this crime and the role of the Council was temporarily resolved by means of shelving it. Therefore, for Article 5 to become operative is dependent on a legal definition being subsequently incorporated into the statute along the same lines as the other statute crimes and setting out the conditions for the exercise of the court's jurisdiction in respect of that crime. Such a provision was to be introduced through an amendment process which will now take place at the review conference to be held in Kampala, during which a decision may or may not be adopted. Two issues are at the heart of the debate which has been waged within the special working group on aggression and which will be discussed in Kampala. The first is whether the crime of aggression, which presupposes the existence of an act of aggression by a state, should be defined on the basis of the acts listed in General Assembly Resolution 3314 uh, on the definition of aggression. The current proposals include a number of options. What is proposed is an Article 8 bis, which defines the crime of aggression as the planning, preparation, initiation, or execution by a person in a position effectively to exercise control over or to direct the political or military action of a state of an act of aggression, which by its character, gravity, and scale constitutes a manifest violation of the Charter of the United Nations. The 1974 General Assembly Resolution is relied on for an enumeration of the acts of aggression. So this is more or less agreed upon after uh, numerous uh, debates on the question. But there still remains the debate on whether and how the consent of the alleged aggressor state should be given to an eventual amendment. I'm not going to go through this in detail because more relevant in my context is the second important issue as to whether the Security Council should have the exclusive prerogative to determine an act of aggression by the state concerned before proceedings against particular individuals could be initiated before the court. 
Article 5.2, paragraph 2 of the statute, does not refer to the Security Council. It merely states that such a provision shall be consistent with the relevant provisions of the Charter of the United Nations. But in an explanation of vote, the United Nations States contended that the statute must recognize the role of the Security Council in determining that aggression has been committed. There are several options currently being examined which envisage the addition of an Article 15 bis. One of these options is to grant an exclusive role to the Security Council to establish the existence of an act of aggression committed by a state on the basis of a resolution adopted under Chapter 7 of the Charter before the pr prosecutor can proceed with an investigation into the crime of aggression. In the absence of such a determination by the Council, the prosecutor could not proceed with such an investigation. But there are other options that would not grant such an exclusive role to the Council. This would mean that in the absence of a decision of the Security Council within a particular time frame of six months, and as I've said before, the Security Council has never yet determined an act of aggression, either the prosecutor could proceed with such an inv investigation with or without the authorization of the pretrial chamber, or could do so on the basis of either a determination by the General Assembly or the International Court of Justice that an act of aggression had been committed by a state. It is also stated that a determination of an act of aggression by an organ outside the court shall be without prejudice to the court's own findings under the statute. Now, if the terms relevant provisions of the Charter in Article 5, Paragraph 2 of the statute to be interpreted as granting exclusive responsibility to the Council in making such a determination, the Council would effectively control access to the court insofar as aggression was concerned with no stipulated time limits. And as I've said, the Security Council has so far not made a formal finding of an act of aggression, and when it has on occasion expressed concern over acts of states which it has qualified as aggressive, it has not done so as a formal determination which could serve as a clear-cut basis for ICC action. And this ambiguous language would make it very difficult for the court to rely on such a finding. Moreover, as was pointed out in the debates, the inbuilt voting system within the Council would inevitably lead to double standards and to one-sided prosecutions whereby the crimes of only one side to the conflict might be prosecuted, for example, war crimes committed in the course of a war against an aggressor, while the other side could enjoy impunity for the act of aggression. To establish a time frame within which that determination has to be made, after which the court may turn to other organs of the United Nations or proceed itself, would be a more fitting reconciliation of the prerogatives of the Security Council with the independence of the court. At any rate, it has been pointed out that the Security Council could always suspend an investigation or prosecution using its prerogatives under Article 16 of the statute. This is not the place to go into any in-depth discussion of each option, as the debate is still very much open. I just want to point out that it is not certain that the Security Council has the exclusive responsibility under the Charter to determine acts of aggression. 
the reference to the relevant provisions of the Charter in Article 5, Paragraph 2 of the Rome Statute clearly must be interpreted in light of United Nations practice. Undeniably, the Security Council has priority under the Charter in respect of the qualification of aggression and its consequences. However, as the International Court of Justice has classically stated in the expenses case and in other cases, and the war case, for example, primary does not mean exclusive responsibility in matters of international peace and security. The General Assembly has itself assumed the competence to define aggression in Resolution 3314, and the Uniting for Peace resolution had envisaged, in the absence of a Security Council determination of an act of aggression, resort to a General Assembly qualification. Nor has the International Court of Justice, another principal organ of the United Nations, considered itself debarred from a case in which aggression was alleged, which means that it can also reach its own separate qualification of such acts. In the Nicaragua case, the court did not shy away from examining responsibility in matters of aggression, armed attack, and self-defense, despite arguments that these were non-justiciable issues. It stated that, and I quote, even after a determination under Article 39, there is no necessary inconsistency between Security Council action and adjudication by the court. Admittedly, however, such a determination by the ICJ would be dependent on a jurisdictional basis and hence on the prior consent of the alleged aggressor state. It is also true that the ICJ has so far deliberately avoided branding a state as an aggressor, for example, in the case concerning armed activities on the territory of the Congo. In considering the relationship between the ICC and the Security Council, a distinction should also be made between ad hoc tribunals instituted by the Council and a court based on consent of the state parties. This led the judges on the Yugoslavia Tribunal consulted on the ILC draft in 1995 to state, in quotes, it does not seem necessary to provide that the court defer to the Security Council on the subject of aggression, the effect of which would be to give the Security Council and in particular the permanent members exclusive rights of definition over the term aggression, making it the mouth of the oracle for this category of crimes. The tribunal's judges respectfully suggest that this would be an undesirable outcome. Another issue that is raised, uh, apart from the one between a judicial and a political organ, is the relationship between state and individual responsibility, also raised in the case of the crime of aggression. It has been argued that the respective roles of the Council and the ICC would be complementary, not contradictory. Once the Council had qualified an act of the state as aggression, the court could then play its role in establishing individual criminal responsibility. But this is premised on a clear-cut separation of state from individual responsibility, which may not be the case in practice, for there is no watertight division, as the ICJ has demonstrated in its application of the Genocide Convention case. Were the Council to have exclusive responsibility to determine through a political decision that a state had committed an act of aggression, and were this finding to be authoritative for and non-reviewable by the court, 
This could have the effect, for instance, of depriving a head of state or other high official of the presumption of innocence or a legal defense such as a claim of self-defense. For how indeed could the court reach a decision that the head of state was not guilty of aggression after the council had determined the state itself to be the aggressor? Such Security Council determinations would therefore have a serious impact on the legal position of an individual brought before the court. Moreover, it should be reminded that the Council would neither be bound by the definitions continued, uh, contained in the 1974 General Assembly Resolution, nor for that matter by the listing of acts of aggression ultimately included in the Statute of the International Criminal Court. There is a third issue, which is the question of hierarchy and subordination. Two of the judicial organs established under the UN Charter, the International Court of Justice and the International Criminal Tribunal for former Yugoslavia, one a primary organ, the other a subsidiary organ, have refused to defer to the Council and that notwithstanding differences in their charter status. The International Court of Justice has itself pointed out in a number of cases, the Tehran hostage case, Nicaragua, Lockerbie, that the only form of litispendence in the Charter is that, that which is implied in Article 12, which expressly forbids the General Assembly to take any recommendation with regard to a dispute or situation while the Security Council is exercising its functions in respect of that dispute or situation. Article 12 coordinates the jurisdiction of two political organs, and this has not been replicated in the Charter in respect of the relationship between the International Court of Justice and the Security Council. The ICJ has consequently argued that clearly there is no hierarchy there between political and judicial organs, and that even where it is led to enter the field, which is the Council's primary responsibility, it is not obliged to defer to the Security Council. In cases in which the ICJ has been faced with questions of concurrent jurisdiction, it has always maintained, and I quote, the Council has functions of a political nature assigned to it, whereas the court exercises purely judicial functions. Both organs can therefore perform their separate but complementary functions with respect to the same events. But it has been seen in the Lockerbie case that where the council is acting under the mandatory provisions of Chapter 7, its quasi-judicial determinations have had def definitive legal effects as well as extensive legal consequences. It has therefore been held that a clear division of functions between the ICJ and the Security Council along the lines of a political-legal dichotomy is tenable, and I quote, so long as no aspect of these political solutions adopted by the Council sets aside, rules out, or renders impossible the juridical solution expected by the Court. This was Judge Bajawi. Insofar as its relationship with the Security Council was concerned, the appeals chamber of the ICTY considered that it was not totally defined by the relationship between a principal and subsidiary organ. Drawing on its inherent judicial powers, the tribunal has refused to regard itself exclusively as a subsidiary organ of the council, and I quote, a creation totally fashioned to the smallest detail by its creator and remaining totally in its power and in its mercy. I'm quoting here from the Tadic case. The tribunal had a juridical nature. This meant that it possessed certain attributes inherent in the judicial function, as for example, la compétence de la compétence.
To conclude, the role bestowed on the Security Council by the court statute puts to the test the need for the independence and impartiality of the ICC as a judicial organ. This is one of the main stakes in modeling a workable relationship between the Security Council and the criminal court. So far, the Council has somewhat addressed these concerns and has manifested a cooperative attitude, both in its referral to the, council, uh, to the court and in cutting short its deferral in Resolution 1422. The problem remains that of the unity or coherence of the legal system. On the one hand, there is a need to develop and increase the effectiveness of international institutions to ensure the respect and enforcement of certain norms vital to the international community as a whole. Through its participation in the institutionalization of international criminal law, the Council has contributed indirectly to the development by criminal jurisdictions of international criminal law and procedures. In regard to the tribunals it has established or helped to create, the Council has insisted that these judicial bodies rigorously adhere to fundamental rules of criminal justice, including due process. At the same time, the interlocking of collective security mechanisms with the hybrid process of institutionalization of criminal responsibility underlines the many risks involved in developing international law through a process that includes the ad hoc and piecemeal reactions of a political organ to particular crises, particularly in respect of the coherence of international law. In view of the pivotal role that the Security Council has assumed in recent times, it is impractical to deny the Council any role at all in the forging of a system of individual criminal responsibility, and its linkage with the ICC could certainly contribute to the latter's authority. But this linkage must be tempered to ensure safeguards both for the rights of states and for those of individuals in accordance with general principles of criminal law. So this is only to underline the importance of viewing the relationship between the Security Council and the International Criminal Court not only as a technical and specialized question of international criminal justice, but also as raising important systemic issues.